man, I, I know a lot of people from Chicago that have different lives, that do different things, that are wonderful people. I was like, I love my city too. And so all that came together. And I was like, I want to do a podcast about Chicago, but I just want to bring people in and just talk about their experiences. All right, Beth, just your attention. Uh, the end nine, we have workers in this area working on the track. Focus uh, on the track. Welcome to Deeper Dish. For all my listeners, I have a special guest today, and that guest is me, Farah, host of Deeper Dish. But I also have a special host with me as well. So I'm trying not to be formal because she's kind of giving me a crazy smile look, like, don't fuck this up, you know. My wife is here today to interview me or to have a discussion, and I think from our discussions offline away from this interview or this recording, we had talked about giving people a behind the scenes look at the podcast. So she's kind of come prepared with some questions that I have not seen or read or heard to her knowledge. They're on her phone. Even though I have the password, I have not looked at those. (laughs) (laughs) Better not have. (laughs) I have no, I have not looked at those questions. So I'm hearing everything for the first time. So without, Further ado, here is my wife, Taylor. So thanks for having me. Yeah. It's kind of fun to put you on the hot seat. Is there anything you want to tell people about yourself before we start? I guess I'd just start with the fact that you didn't want me to be the one to interview you and you were going to find someone else. And I kept saying, well, why can't I do it? So I don't know if you didn't trust me or you didn't want to open up or you thought it'd be easier with a stranger. But I'm happy that I'm here and I'm the one that gets to ask the questions. Right. As usual, I don't know if that's the whole truth. <laughs> so how, how actually, how long have I been talking about doing this episode with you? Three months. Okay. And I asked you to give me a date when you're like, life is too busy. It's so busy. Oh, I forgot about it. So when you say I didn't want you to do it, I kept saying, if you can't do it, if you don't have time, if you don't have the emotional, mental capacity to do it, I can find plenty of other hot chicks that will come in here and look at me for an hour and a half to to do this interview. There's pressure, right? I mean, this is like, who's a better podcast interviewer, Taylor or Farah is kind of what this comes down to, right? No. So I could become an overnight sensation from this. To be honest with you, I'm not really worried about that. (laughs) So what's your reason for doing the podcast? What was the motivation? What was your inspiration? I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but I think the motivation was I I had spent a lot of time talking to friends about different things, whether it be about politics, sports, just things that interest me or things that didn't interest me that that people told me about. And it was like, oh, that's interesting. So I, I found myself thinking about all these conversations I was having with friends. And I was like, I think people might want to be a fly on the wall, you know, or be in the room to hear some of those conversations. Not to say that what we were saying was interesting, but I feel like I have a eclectic, different, diverse group of friends that come from all walks of life. And then I started to look at that from the lens of like, man, I, I know a lot of people from Chicago that have different lives, that do different things, that are wonderful people. I was like, I love my city too. And so all that came together and I was like I want to do a podcast about Chicago but I just want to bring people in and just talk about their experiences another thing is if people are sharing their experiences with other people that are different 
I think that helps us, I say us, like not you and me in this house, but helps us as people in the long run. If you listen to the podcast, it's very intentional that my podcast isn't a young person's podcast. This isn't an old person. It's not a black podcast. It's a podcast about Chicago. And Chicago is one-third you know, Hispanic, one-third white, one-third black. So it's kind of all over the place. Every episode, just like every neighborhood in Chicago, isn't for everyone. But if you bring all the episodes together kind of as a portfolio, you're like, oh, that's a good representation of Chicago and the type of things that are happening in Chicago. So I guess my reason was like if I could bring that all together and share it with people, whether it be two people, 10 people, 100 people, uh, 200 people, 1,000 people, then great. The last reason was that I feel like I just needed a hobby. You know, it's something that I was passionate about besides video games a long time ago. Free kids. Free kids. I used to play a shit ton of Mario Kart, which I am very proud. I always tell people I was one of the top 15% of the people <laughs> in the world at Mario Kart at one point. I haven't played in years. And you remember those days we used to play in... Granted, 90% of those people were 10-year-old kids. But that's even more impressive. That's, <laughs> that, that's all they do. Like, I was going to work and then coming home putting in five hours a night. I don't know if I should be bragging about that. No. Play Mario Kart. But that was when I was young and, and crazy. But anyway, back to your question. I felt like I needed a hobby, like a more serious hobby. When I say hobby, people don't see with the podcast is that for every, you know, hour episode, I, we, whoever has helped me has probably put in 10 to 15 hours. You see it, right? I see it. <laughs> you see me editing. You see well, me Actually, editing. I don't see you doing it, but I know you're out there doing it because right. you're not with us. I'm out in the streets. And there are a lot of people I meet that it just doesn't work out, right? That I don't feel comfortable enough. Not that it's bad or good. I'm just like, I don't. I, I don't know if I can get a story. So I meet a lot of people, and then the ones that I think I can take to another level, I cultivate it. And then after it gets cultivated, you record. When people hear an hour, we've probably recorded for like two, two and a half hours, and then you get edit. You know, so they, there's a lot of people don't see when I say I need a hobby. You know, so it could be. A range of five to fifteen hours a week, and I think we also don't see the fact that we're sitting here on professional mic stands and professional microphones and all of this equipment that has millions of cables that I have no idea what it right, is or right. what it does. Right? I mean, you had to learn a lot about that in order to produce the podcast. Too. I did. I had to learn a whole bunch. How did you do that? That doesn't seem like the fun part to me. But was <laughs> that fun? Right? Was that exciting? Was that enjoyable? I would say yes. Where I'm at now. If I had to go out and learn a whole bunch of new stuff about this, I'd be like, God, on top of the time I'm already doing this, I, I would need more. I would need help. But when I was doing it, it was really exciting. I didn't know anything about equipment, recording. The only thing I knew about was a mic. You speak into a mic and the sound, if it's on, goes somewhere. That's, that's, that's all I knew. But I had to learn about the different types of mic. There's a condenser mic, a dynamic mic. There are mics that are more forgiving. There are mics that are specifically for, um, like one of the early mistakes was that I bought a mic that is better for capturing the sound of a band versus someone sitting talking. So I had to learn the difference between that stuff. I had to learn how to capture sound. People don't realize that sound is a real interesting thing to try to not only capture it, but amplify it. And every little thing, it's like, I'm not at this level, but you know, these the sommeliers, when they taste wine, from an audible perspective, every little thing makes a sound. Like, you may not hear it, but I heard those people walking by without even looking out the window. 
definitely you can hear a car going by. Or, you know, remember we used to have the, the fridge. <laughs> you hear the buzz of the fridge. Like, the lights in the basement make a sound. And so I had to learn, like, how that impacts. Like, there's some things that I'm okay with, right? My listeners don't really care about it. But then there are some things that are really critical. You want to understand, like, what the consumer would like to hear. Because sometimes if someone is committing an hour, right, to listening to you, they don't, or 30, 40 minutes, whatever, they don't want to hear shit. So I had to learn all these elements and, like, hey, I need to get headsets. I need to understand when I record this where it goes or do I want to record directly into my computer? That that causes more variation in the sound. You know, there's just things like that. So you were there. I was. It took me like four or five months just me constantly researching. So, yeah, it was, it was fun because I was learning something new. I was learning about something that was going to help me achieve a goal that I really wanted was to do this podcast. What have you learned about yourself through all this? I think that... The biggest takeaway is that, I mean, I got some really cool associates and friends and people in my life. And, and I say that in respect to folks' willingness to come on and, like, kind of bear their soul, tell me a lot of things that they wouldn't tell others. You know, it's probably a good thing that, it, that this is not a huge, like a, when I say huge, I mean, this is successful for me. But I'm talking about, like, 10,000 listeners or everybody in Chicago knows about it because there are some people that live very professional lives that have come on this podcast and, and shared a lot of things with me. So I've learned that about the people that have decided to come on and share, but specifically about myself. We have two daughters. We always tell our daughters they can do anything if they want to, if they try, if they work hard. And, and to a certain degree, that's true. To a certain degree, that may not always be true, but you can't like kill your kids' <laughs> dreams <laughs> at five. But I think this is a good example of me not knowing anything about sound. I wasn't into music or anything in high school. I wasn't in, you know, these things that would make it easier for me to pick up how editing is and how do you edit and what's important in editing? Like, how do you capture sound? So like literally going from nothing to this point to publishing something on, on iTunes and Stitcher and Google play, I think it, kind of showed me that oh you if you put your mind to it you can do anything and I've done some difficult things but this is actually pretty difficult in a good way at no point when I run into roadblocks or if I've had problems with the content because sometimes the content is not what I want or sometimes the content is not what I agree with you know people say things I don't agree with but I never feel like it's a job so even when there are moments when it's like stressful or when things go wrong I always feel like oh Let's just sit down and come up with a solution for that problem. There is stress that comes with this, but I never feel like in the moment like it's a job. That's how I, I know I, I truly like it and enjoy it and love it. And so I think I've just learned that you really can do anything if you really want to. When people ask me about your podcast, I liken it to the Humans of New York series that you know has gone viral on Facebook and things like that, right? It's kind of like an oral version for, you know, people in Chicago, right? right? Because I think a lot of the stories that you've told have been people who have survived trials and tribulations and gone through a hard time in life. What is it about your background, your unique story, right, that makes you different? So I, I lived in North Lawndale, then moved to Little Italy. Then we moved out to Oak Park. And then I went off to Champaign, Urbana for college. And then I moved to Detroit or actually Farmington Hills for like a year and a half. Farmington Hills, Dearborn. Then I moved back to Chicago and I bought a place in Homewood in the south suburbs. And I lived in Bolingbrook for a little bit, southwest suburbs. And then I lived in Old Town before I met you for a few months. And then I met you and then we moved to Old Town. And then uh, we moved away out of the country. But then we moved back 
to Lincoln Park. So all those neighborhoods are neighborhoods in Chicago that I've most of them, except for the ones in Detroit, those neighborhoods have different demographics. And so growing up in North Lawndale, Lawndale, it was predominantly African-American, bordered by Hispanic. If people aren't familiar with like the public school system, there's free lunch program. So I bounce between free lunch and 20 cents. So the free lunch means that you didn't have a lot of money. Your family probably was poor. My mom worked, but we're at a certain level where we qualified to get a free lunch from the public schools. And probably 85% of the kids I went to school with were also free lunch students as well. And that just describes kind of like the environment. In the 80s and 90s, when we were over, when I was over there, uh, I think like the crack cocaine epidemic was big, a lot of gang violence and whatnot. And so when you're growing up in it, you can't help but see it. The one thing I will say is that I was pretty insulated from it. I was I was actually kind of protected by my family with all the stuff that was going on around us. I never felt like that was an option for me. Drugs or gangs or all of that. Drugs, gangs. You know, I wasn't the kid that was you know out there in the corners, out there in the street. You know, I would hang out, play basketball with my friends, and run around. But at a certain time, I was in the house or I was doing something else. I was playing sports or whatever. Just because there was a lot of that doesn't mean that that's all it was. North Lawndale is it's a tight community of people that are doing good things, that are going to work, that have good jobs, that are paying bills, paying taxes, they own homes. But to sit here and say that there wasn't gangs and violence would not be true. So my aunt got cancer back then. It was real serious, like low survival rates. And so we moved to Little Italy to be closer to Rush Presbyterian Hospital. Because you lived with your aunt. We lived in the same building that my grandfather owned in, in Lawndale. But then we, we moved to Rush Presbyterian in a nice building, which is full of UIC college students and doctors. We lived together in the same apartment. So there was four of us that lived in a two-bedroom apartment. As the name would say, it was a lot of Italians, Italian immigrants. That was different. You know, I hadn't seen that many white people <laughs> in close proximity ever in my life. And now I'm living in their neighborhood. It's no longer my neighborhood. And it was eye-opening. It was the first time I had heard the N-word used in such a negative manner. But it was also, Little Italy has Taylor Street, and you got Rosebud, and you got all these establishments that are really famous in Chicago. You know, you got the lemonade stand over there, Mario's, you got Rosebud, there's a bar over there, Hawkeye. There's patios. There are a lot of things over there. St. Ignatius High School is over there. And so I got to see all that stuff firsthand. And we moved around a lot and quite a bit. But no matter where I lived in whatever neighborhood, I always found my way and was embraced by people. My mom always says that if you break bread with someone, you're kind of like family. And I've never not been able to just sit and break bread with someone, even if they're of a different community, you know, whether it be Italian and, or Filipino. I had that experience, and then we moved out to Oak Park for high school, which was a totally different experience. Oak Park basically borders Chicago and the western suburbs. And, I mean, there are black people out there, but there are a lot of wealthy people out there as well. So Oak Park and River Forest go to the same high school, and it's just a different demographic, different, I wouldn't say values, but there's a lot of different stuff going on. And I got plopped into to that environment. I remember it took me a year to adjust to that. The point of it is it's like all these neighborhoods I lived in, I was able to be a good observer of people. And I picked up all this stuff that kind of made me who I am. So I lived in one of the more impoverished neighborhoods 
in America. You look at the journey, so to speak, and where I am now, and we probably live in more in one of the more affluent neighborhoods in America. And that journey has taken me to my undergraduate degree, get an MBA, and I'm not proud that you know I was the first person I believe in my family to get a undergraduate degree or an MBA. I'm just kind of more proud that I've been able to have these wonderful experiences and meet these people. I have a different view than most people of Chicago. In any given week, I could literally be in Inglewood talking to someone about something, not even podcast related. Like if someone invites me to Inglewood to some kind of function, I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. Or you want to go to the Zabo Museum, or I could go up to Lake Forest or Glenview, or I could be out west or southwest. I mean, I'll go anywhere in the city. And I feel very comfortable no matter where I am, any time of night. But I also feel everywhere I go, I feel uncomfortable where I am, which I think is healthy. (laughs) And so that kind of has led to or influenced the podcast. And so you, you see the guests. The guests are from all walks of life. These are friends of friends of friends, you know. Uh, I don't know if that makes me better to tell that story or what, what, what makes me different, but I don't know that many people that have had my experience. And that's another thing, too, is just, like, being inquisitive. Like, oh, I've never done that. Let me go down here and check it out. You know, or I've never met this person. Okay, let's go check it out. One of my favorite experiences is there's going to be a guy – that comes on the show, and we're going to have a conversation about guns. We are ideologically opposed in every single way. He grew up in a small rural town. I grew up in Chicago. You know, he is as conservative as you could imagine, but he takes me shooting. He probably voted from Trump, but every time we get together, we have a disagreement. We have a glass of scotch. We disagree some more. We eat whatever, a steak or something, and afterwards we give each other a hug. We say, hey, I'll see you again another two or three months, right? And I think, for me, that's what it's supposed to be like. Even if you disagree with someone, you can get really contentious. If you have things in common, disagree, hear each other out respectfully, but then you you walk away, you're, you're cool. And so I think that you also get that element in the podcast as well. So you talked about how you've seen a lot of different sides of Chicago. Those of us that know you well know that you love Chicago, right? If you come to our house, there is Chicago... That we have a right. Chicago flag, we have a Chicago Bulls sign, we have, you know, we're surrounded by Chicago paraphernalia in our house. Yeah, we have four or five different photos and maps and yeah. Yeah, you yeah. you love your city and you're proud of your city. I am. What is it about Chicago that holds your heart? A lot of times people love their city because it's of all the popular things that you hear about. And I do. I think it's great. Like the Bulls six championships. You know, in nine years or eight years, awesome. Downtown, amazing. The architecture, the fact that Chicago is Paris on the prairie, you know, what they say on the architecture boat tour. You got museums and you got every sports team. This could be good or bad. You got a strong political machine in Chicago that is known throughout the nation. You have beautiful neighborhoods and you got the Garfield Conservatory and you got great suburbs too, right? You got people that actively coming in and also actively going out. But I think what draws me to the city is not all that stuff, but like the people, you know, in those neighborhoods, the people, whether it be in Lakeview or the story of how folks migrated here from the South, like the black people, how they migrated from the South and like 
being able to see kind of what happened, the good stuff and the bad stuff that happened to those people or, or the people that fled Eastern Europe during all the struggle. And you have these neighborhoods like Ukrainian Village. You have all these neighborhoods, Koreatown. You have the Maxwell Street area that was predominantly a, a Jewish population of people selling their trade and, and whatnot. I love that part of the city. I love the history and I love how that has shaped people you know, and what's important. So anytime I get an opportunity to go to one of these old neighborhoods, you see me when we're on, we're on dates, we're walking, and there are, there'll be a plaque. And I'll be like, oh, let me read about this. I'm like, oh, did you know this was a, this used to be an old German neighborhood? We live in a neighborhood that had a lot of Germans in it. I like that. The church we go to pays homage to the anti-German sentiment that was here in Chicago, where they, they don't have the apostrophe S with the St. Paul's. So I love things like that, the little nuances and things that, we may not see. And when I was doing that interview with Chef Juan from Kimsky, and he's in Bridgeport, I love going down to Bridgeport because when I was growing up, I was told as a black person, don't go to Bridgeport. So like the fact that I can go there now and then still talk to someone that has been there for a long time, it's like, okay, man, tell me how this used to be and what was it like and what changed. I like all that stuff. I like the stuff that you may not necessarily see in the headlines. I don't know if I've done a good job, but I, I've tried to pull some of that stuff out in the podcast. What's your favorite place in Chicago? So, you know, on Lakeshore Drive, when you're in Lower Wacker, you come up off of Lower Wacker and you come up and it merges with Lakeshore Drive and you look to the right and you just see the lake. And then you look to the left, you see downtown. That's my favorite place. Most of the places we've been, we've been, I've like seen the Champs-Élysées, Los Ramblas in Barcelona. We've done Bahnhofstrasse in Zurich. We've seen these amazing, iconic streets in these amazing cities. And I still get the chills. You know, if I go out of the way so I can come up off a of lower whacker and just see that, it's cars only. And when I look, for the most part, except for one building, I look to the east, there's no buildings. It's just beautiful lake. And then I get to look to my left and see all these amazing buildings, what the city could be. You know, people call Chicago the Windy City and Shy Town. But like the Windy City has nothing to do with the wind, has something to do, it's everything to do with politics, right? Then the, I also like that we're called the city that works. We're a big city. We're the third largest city in the country, soon to be the fourth largest city. But we're still a Midwestern city with Midwestern values. And there's something really gritty and hardworking about the city. And I love that, right? It, it doesn't matter if you work in private equity or you work in the, the waterworks or you're a garbage man, or whatever it is. There's something about Chicagoans that like get after it, that hard work. So you said your favorite place. What's your favorite restaurant in Chicago? My favorite place is Cafe Barbariba. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, there's different levels. If I had to have one meal, I would go to Cafe Barbariba. The sherry meatballs are amazing. All their dishes are amazing. The sangria is amazing. But if, let's say, we have people in town, we want to give them a, a slightly nicer experience. I like Boca. As you know, I'm I'm not very creative when it comes to my food. Like I, Once I find something I like, let's keep doing it. Those two places are amazing. One of my new favorite places, which Caroline Vickery got me hooked on, is the Chicago Bagel Authority. I'm fascinated when places have 800 different items on the menu and they can still have a good quality. And you like you see them make all the stuff fresh right there. And I love places that are just local. We have two breakfast spots, right? Well, I have one. Well, I'll go breakfast and lunch, which is batter and berries. 
And then the other spot is Shuba's. That was our favorite place to go as a family. We go to Shuba's Saturday or Sunday or Saturday and Sunday. All these places that we go, we don't know people by first name, but for the most part, we know people and they're like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, like, I like that Welcome feel. Welcome back. Hey, exactly. What I like about Batter and Berries is, you know, we live in Lincoln Park and it's predominantly white neighborhood, but Batter and Berries is black owned. It's literally three blocks away from us, two and a half blocks away from us. And it's not one of those places that's black owned that doesn't draw black people. It draws black folks, Hispanics. From all over the city. All over the city. So so to me, it's like representative of like Chicago. It's everybody, right? The other thing I like about it is that big, long table in the middle. And I don't know if people notice this. It's community style seating at that table. And so you could literally, there was one day I was next to like a borderline homeless vet. And then there was like a mixed race couple right across from me. And then there were two African-American women from uh, the South Side. You would never, ever get those people on average at the same table. And that's one of the things I learned when we lived in Europe is like, at first I think we were annoyed, <laughs> like we got to sit with these people. But then after a while I realized that's great. That's awesome. Like to get all of these people sitting together. I also like the fact that black folks feel comfortable. Everybody feels comfortable coming here. Because sometimes this neighborhood can be a little harsh to people that don't look like what the neighborhood looks like. So what was your favorite podcast? Podcasts are like kids. You know, there's no favorite. For real, I have favorites for different reasons. Like one of my favorites is obviously the first one. Not the my intro, but the first one with my friend L. One, because she was just an amazing guest. Two, it was the first one. Right? It was the first time. You remember the nervousness I had? I was like, I got. I gave myself this hard deadline, and I was working really hard to get that out. And I think I released it on Christmas, and which was like a, a five days before my deadline, and I was pushing myself. And, and it was good. And you were like, how do you feel? I was like, I think I feel good. I'm good. And, I mean, inside I was really happy. And you were like, no, you should be happy. I don't know anybody that has a podcast on iTunes. You're on iTunes. I was like. Yeah, I guess I'm on iTunes. I was I was thinking about the next episode, but the first one is just always amazing, right? But then the feedback you get from that when I got from the feedback I got from that first one was amazing. I mean, people were literally saying it made them cry. It made them they wanted more, right? They wanted to know what happened, what was next, and that was amazing. The one I did with my friend Tim Swindle and his utter nonsense and his entrepreneurship that one was cool because I knew Tim in college. If you would have told me that Tim was going to be a successful entrepreneur, doing well, I would have told you bullshit, you know? I thought he was going to be successful, but not doing that. He was always smart, but you hear these stories of these entrepreneurs, and you're like, they were always engaged in some kind of entrepreneurial program, and that just, that wasn't Tim. So that one was great. One of my other favorite ones was the one with Boya Day. People don't know it, that I didn't know Boya Day, like, prior to two weeks, three weeks before that show, you know, he and I sat down and I had Charlie with me. It was probably one of the first times I had taken Charlie to the South. Like he lives in Bronzeville. I took Charlie to the South side and that was just a cool experience to see her interact with people. And Charlie's you know. our five-year-old. Charlie's our oldest. And she just sat there with her iPad. When I met him, we just hit it off, got into it. We still stay in touch. We're trying to create some programs for some schools on the south side but it's very rare at this late stage in life that you meet someone that you instantly connect with and that you're aligned with and i have another one that hasn't come out that is my least favorite <laughs> i had convinced myself that i could sit down with anybody 
and it go well and go fine. I think it's going to be a really good episode, but it was my, it's my least favorite to listen to because I'm just so ideologically opposed to the views in the episode. What's the episode about? Trump. Trump supporter. Like I said, I told you about my friend Craig, right? Like he and I are on opposite ends, but we always find common ground and we always respect each other. It is very difficult to to sit and hear someone talk about certain things in a certain way that are disrespectful or borderline racist, like or oblivious to it, you know? And, and so the reason that one is taking so long because that that one takes a lot of emotional energy out of me every time I listen to it. And what people don't see is that I probably listen to every show five, six, seven times. Before you air it. Before I air it. Sometimes I send it to people and have other people listen to it before I air it just to get feedback. Because you miss things, right? I have, I have my blind spots, especially when it's dealing with sensitive topics. Like if I'm dealing with like women's issues, I got a group of people, women that listen to it. They give me perspective. So that one is my least favorite from an editing perspective. It was a good lesson, you know, what my limits are as far as what I can listen to. You just have to be prepared for it. It shocks you at the core, some of the shit you hear. It's like, damn. To be fair to everybody, I love all the episodes. And I love them for, like, different reasons. But those are, like, three favorites that stand out. I have to like them all because these people are just coming in and, like, just, just laying their souls out for me. That's pretty cool. It takes a lot of trust to get to that point. What's been the hardest part? Biggest challenges you've faced along the way? The biggest challenge is trying to find people that share your passion about podcasting. And like, when I say passion, like that are going to put as much time in it as you are that are going to like hold up their end of the bargain. You know, cause you think you sit down with people and you say, I got this idea and they go, Oh, it's awesome. I'm like, let's do it. And you know me when I say I'm going to do something, I don't like, you know, do to do gingerly walk in the park. I'm like, let's do it. Like if I send you a text at three o'clock, I'm expecting a response back in 30 minutes. You know, you're going to call your person by this time frame and we're going to talk about this. And then when people like don't do it, it slows up the process and that that can be frustrating. And so what I had to realize is that people just don't share your passion the same way. They are happy about your passion and they think it's a good idea, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to work as hard or share the load with you. There is this uh, remember the election cycle two two cycles ago with Mitt Romney. Remember that comment he made? He's like, I love firing people. During this podcast, I was like, I totally fucking get it. Like, I still wouldn't vote for the guy, but I get what the fuck he's saying. Like, it's easier to work with people when you're paying them. Like, I know I'm taking it from a different perspective. Like, I have an editor that lives in Greece. We're many time zones different, but I can always count on her because I know that she likes getting paid, (laughs) right? And when she doesn't, like, get paid, she's... She could be upset, or if I don't get what I want, I could go out and find 80 other editors that will do what I need them to do. I have to build up the relationship, and they, that will take work, but it's it's easier to do that, you know, knowing that someone will end the relationship. And and that's a lesson I learned. It's like sometimes when you want to get something done, just pay someone to do it. Even if that person is your friend, say, hey, let's set up a working relationship. I don't want to feel like I'm just kind of like some project on the side. I want to hit a deadline so that I have time to do what I need to do for the podcast. That has been probably the more difficult part. I mean, and it's little things like, hey, let's meet at 8. That doesn't mean show up at 8.45. At the same time, I actually understand where those people are coming from. It's just they want to help, but it's not their thing. Of course, their thing, but it's not their number one priority. Yeah, it's not their number one priority, but 
they are probably more passionate about something else. Don't expect something from someone that can't give it to you, even though they can't verbalize that. And I'm not even talking about guests. You know, I'm talking about people that have helped out along the way. We had a lot of people help out and I've been very appreciative of those people. But the guests, for the most part, they show up on time. No one is really canceled. We've had one person cancel and that's because that person was doing some big shit. It was probably going to be the most popular per- or most famous person on the show and they just didn't have time to do it. And we and I understood that. Another thing about that is what's disappointing is that I know I'm a one-man show for the most part. Going into it, I didn't know anything about it. I wanted to be able to bounce ideas off someone and get a different opinion, even if it was, wasn't the same as mine. I wanted that opinion. I wanted that feedback. And what I've learned is that, you got, one, you got to have confidence in yourself. But I also have a good network of associates and friends that I can say, hey, could you please listen to this in the next two days? And they would totally do it. The concern and fears that I had about diving into this alone because remember that i was like I, I, I need to work with someone i don't know what the fuck i'm doing you know it became very easy to kind of like set up my own like little advisory council and say hey what do you think about this what came out of that is that i'm i'm here i'm doing it it makes it more efficient if i'm here by myself doing it you know it makes the guests more comfortable and whatnot this isn't a professional studio it's in my basement because there's only one of me and it's not it does take time away from family it took me time to find that balance, you know, with you. Little things like the noise and, you know, I, I want to get this project off, but I also don't want to neglect you in the, in, the, in the family. Things that we normally do, like that's what we did. We go up, you talk, you fall asleep, and then I come back and set the alarm, clean up, and do whatever I did. And sometimes that didn't happen. I think that could that was a little frustrating to you. There were a couple of months where it was pretty intense, right? You were doing a lot of editing and learning and, you know, especially in the beginning, right? You, everything took twice as long as it does now because it was so new. So I think it helps that some of this stuff is, is a lot easier for you. It still takes a lot of time, but it takes half the time that it did in the early days. I taught myself how to edit. So there's all this editing software. So I learned, I taught myself how to edit. And although I don't do my editing, teaching myself how to edit helped me have a better conversation with the editor, right? And so I wanted to learn every piece, the equipment part. I wanted to know the software, what was the best software, what, what was the good software for intermediate. So I was talking to so many people. I was spending so much time at the Guitar Center, like emailing random people, like the University of Chicago, person that puts out their podcast, Doing this stuff, it was there was like a two month period where that, that's all I was doing, all my free time. You know, I have a job. I come home, I do the family thing, which is a big thing. I still see my friends, and so I try to make the podcast the least intrusive thing in my life. So I do the podcast from like when you're asleep until like one or two in the morning. But when you do that for like two months straight, that takes a toll. Like when you're up to two or three in the morning. You're waking up a little groggy, maybe not helping out as much with the girls as the wife would like. With that being said, I appreciate you being super supportive in your way. Well, I'm proud of you. I, th- I think the podcast is amazing. I think the fact that, you know, I meant it, right? You're on iTunes. That's something to be proud of, right? You've been able to get all these guests to open their hearts and share their stories with not just you, but with a lot of people. And, and I think it's pretty amazing. I appreciate that. The one thing I can say is being a, a one-man show has been difficult. You know that there's a lot more people that have agreed to come on. I just haven't had time to get to them. I feel bad because there's a lot of content out there. And 
there's a lot of content that is very relevant in the moment and it's still relevant later, but sometimes things happen and like shit, like something big will happen with guns. And I've, I've been trying to get with Craig for a long time. It just hasn't worked out for my schedule and things like that. So, so let's change it up a little bit. Change it up. How would you describe yourself in three words? Passionate, inquisitive, father. I don't think it's intentional, but the things I get involved with, when I love, when I give affection, when I work, for the most part, when I get in, into something, I'm real passionate about it. I don't think like any of my friends would be like, Farah's not a good friend. Somebody said that to me, that would just rip me apart. Cause I, I feel like your friends are your, like the family you get to choose. Nothing against family. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're just born into that family. That's just an example of something that I'm passionate about. And I think that's a good thing and a bad thing because I can be intense. During this podcast, you, you talk to people that you knew in a previous life and, and they start to tell you things from their perspective back then. Like, oh shit, I didn't know that. One person flat out told me, dating you is crazy because you're just so freaking passionate. And I was like, <laughs> the 16 year old me. <laughs> Inquisitive because there's something I don't know. I just want to read as much about it as possible. So I listened to a podcast called Reply All. It's produced by this company called Gimlet Media, which is one of the reasons I got into podcasting. It's like an internet podcast, and it talks about anything and everything internet, but in a very creative way. So it could be things that you wouldn't even think of. It could be religion, whatever it is. And he said, well, when I do a Google search, how deep do you go? And the one guy goes, well, I at least go 15 pages in. And and the one guy's like, What? He goes, yeah, yeah, I, I, I take my searches seriously. Like, I don't just go to the first page. And in a sense, like, being inquisitive, that's that's kind of how I am. Like, when I do a Google search, I go, like, 15, 16. Usually you find the answer on page one, two, or three. But I also want to know what else is out there because you can find some obscure things. Usually it's the stuff is – the information is way off, but there will be one line like, oh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's something that no one else knows. And you read that and then they'll have like a footnote. And then all of a sudden I'm Googling like something on farming and I'm all the way back into 1600s in Switzerland where that idea of farming technology came from or the notion, whatever. So I like to understand and learn about things that I don't know about. And so that helps me in the podcast because I'll, you know, I could, we could be at a restaurant and be like, oh, that's interesting. You, you mind talking about that? Or I'm intrigued about people's story. My form of inquisitiveness comes out in me listening. And what I've learned is when you listen to people, they are more than willing to talk to you about it. Well, people who don't even know you want to talk to you. We'll be at a restaurant or a bar and I'll have gone to like the bathroom and I'll come back and the guy next to you has told you his life story, right? And his deepest, darkest secrets. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't know about deepest, darkest secrets, but there is something about the way you converse with people that makes them feel comfortable. When you don't judge or when you do judge, you come from a thoughtful place. I think it makes people more comfortable and willing to talk to you. When you mix passion and being inquisitive together, it can be a bad combination because people do tell me their deepest, darkest, and when you're passionate and sometimes you don't have in certain moments a healthy respect or because you know people and they let you in, you also know kind of how to like hit the right thing to get a certain reaction. And sometimes that's intentional and unintentional. And then the last one, father. I don't know. I just love being a dad. We have two very independent, very different daughters that are unfolding their lives right in front of us. 
there's nothing that I'm more proud of than being a father. My father was absent early in my life. And then I opted out of the relationship. A lot of people may say, you can't learn from somebody not being there or, you know, you can't learn from bad people. I don't think that's true most times, right? I know how I felt with the absence and then opting out of the relationship. And so now that I'm a father, like, you know, when you were pregnant, I was at every, and it wasn't like, I want to do this because my father didn't do that. It wasn't like that. I just, I just had this thing in me where I'm like, I want to be engaged and involved. But truth be told, there's some shit I'm not engaged on. Like today, it took me an hour to put away their clothes. I don't know where shit is. I don't know where shit goes. One laundry basket. One, <laughs> I was like, where is this? Where? Then I was like, why do they have so many fucking clothes? Like, what the fuck is going on? But I like to be engaged. So like when you had your appointments, whether we were in Switzerland or in Chicago, I tried to go to all of them. There's something about fatherhood that was awesome. I think I learned a lot with my dad's absence. With that absence, I had a lot of people temporarily filling that void that became my mentors. And some of them I'm, I'm still in contact with coach Tyrone Roberts is uh, one of the most amazing men ever. I saw how much work he put in being my mentor, being my coach. I mean, he was my coach, but he was also after practice. Like he was lugging me around everywhere. He, they invited me on like family trips and it, being a parent is a lot of fucking work. Yeah. He was your father figure. He did it in a way and he was very hard on me and I'm glad he was, but he did it in a way that made it seem easy. Like, he never complained. He never asked my mom for, like, money. Like, literally for three years, this dude fed me, got me through football practices as a coach, little, like, short trips. Wherever their, his sons were, I was with them. I look back, and you're like, damn, that was a lot of fucking work. You could never see it, right? And so I know you, a lot of times you, you're like, man, you're really patient, you know, with the girls, and it comes easy. And to a certain degree, it does, but I, sometimes I do have to coach myself and then being like, you know, this is like the greatest gift ever. If like kid does something crazy, yeah, I want to discipline them, but on average, they're good kids. I mean. How would they describe you, your kids? Three words. One of them would be father, which I'm proud of. They would be like, daddy, like, that's just daddy. And that means a lot to me that I'm these little kids' dad and, and you know, not just like here and like, really engage, you know, and like doing stuff. And I would say like fix it because if, if you can't fix something, it's like dad's job to fix it. It's like, oh, this is broken. Daddy can fix it. And the last one I think is just combo, fun and discipline. So somehow I got roped into being a disciplinarian, either two of us. And then I'm also the one that like can probably make them laugh easier than anybody except for each other those two are really good friends and i'm happy that nothing's gonna come between them they make themselves laugh pretty easily but i'm the second person that can make them gut laugh yeah belly laugh full on belly laugh what do you want your legacy to be obviously fatherhood is very important to you so i know that's part of it i don't think i'm out there enough and to be like that confident like this is what i want my legacy to be i want to be like john f kennedy or martin luther king or with my life and my little peon life I have I want people to be like man damn that that guy was he was there for me he was loyal he was a good friend whenever I needed something he's all he always had my back he always went above and beyond what you would expect from a friend or family member he always kept it real with me you know like he didn't tell me what I, what I wanted to hear uh, he told me what I needed to hear he was honest 
with me. He was passionate about our friendship. I want my daughters to know that I love them to the very end, that I'll always be here for them. But my job is not to be their friend. It's just kind of to be their guide and kind of propel them to the greatness that they deserve. I'm very fortunate. I mean, I've sat here for an hour. And, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my mom. So my mom is the most amazing person that I know because my mom made a whole bunch of sacrifices for me to get me here. You know, my mom and my grandmother helped guide me to be the person that I am. I feel like if I'm half the parent that my mom was, then I think my girls would be okay. As long as I can remember, no matter how hard I try, Every turn I take, every trip I track, every choice I make, every road leads back to the place I know where can I go, where I long to be. If I go, there's just no telling how far I'll go, oh, 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 far I'll go, oh, 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 far I'll go, oh, 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 how far I'll go. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> I want to be a great son because I feel like no matter what I do, I think that I'm never going to be able to repay that debt. Like my mom has helped me tremendously as far as guiding me through life and giving me enough space to be my weird <laughs> self. That's another thing that people don't know is that I've always just been different than any like any setting. I'm just a little, a little different than everybody else. I never feel like I completely fit in anywhere, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. My mom noticed that at an early age and didn't try to change me. She just helped me kind of harness that stuff a little bit so that I could get to where I needed to be. Here lies a great father, great son, great partner, great friend. Yeah, let's not write tombstones. That's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so my last question is, if you weren't, a financial consultant by day and a podcaster by night, and you could be anything you wanted to be, what would you be? Oh, that's easy. I'd be a 300 millionaire that had hit the lottery and do fucking nothing. No. Uh, I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> you know that the, the last year, things have kind of changed for me. The election just had a profound effect on me as a person. And then leading up to it also, just kind of opened my eyes to the better person that I need to be specifically need to be for people that look like me in the communities and that look like where I came from. The dream job would be an athletic director at like a power five big 10 school. I'm not coming for Josh Whitman, who's the athletic director, of Illinois. Uh, but I don't know if I would ever want to be athletic director, of Illinois. One of the reasons why we don't live in Oak park is I went to high school in Oak park. I just want to do things different. But I, I wouldn't mind being an athletic director at some big 10 school, like Northwestern or some other place, local, Loyola. Then the other thing I would like to do is I would like to hit the lottery, but I would like to take, like, let's say they have that, like, 500 million lottery. You win it. I would like to take the net proceeds. I would like to take at least half of it and, like, give back to, like, set up foundations that specifically give back to communities that are at risk, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, in Chicago? In Chicago, because I think that's important. And I wouldn't just help youth, and I would help people that maybe our system failed as well, ex-cons. I would definitely spend a good portion of it on youth, because I think the, if you get the youth on the right path, I would spend some money on working with organizations 
that move the needle, not just give money to CPS, which they need it, but like figure out what is the best plan and then just shovel money in and then try to create awareness and engagements for other people to shovel money into it. So I would be an athletic director and then some form of community organizer, but like more high level and like trying to move the needle. And maybe a politician. I don't think the politician, you, my wife, have way too many skeletons for me to be a politician. (laughs) (laughs) True. The one weakness I have of, you know, being a politician is like, I'm just not, those people are very polished and they're concise. I think it takes years to get there. And a lot of people going into it have that down. We can say what we want about people from different sides of the aisle, but those people are good at what they do. Right, they're very polished, concise. They live and breathe all the issues that make the community go. But if people, if somebody came along and said, "Hey, I really think that you would be a good candidate," I would do it. And a lot of politicians, right, they don't need the money. Right, we got, we need my money to pay bills. I have an interest in getting paid, so I'm not at that point where I can, we can be like, "Oh, do whatever the fuck you want to do." Like, no, like to a certain, I, we need my check. <laughs> We got bills. Like, you spend a lot of money on these crazy girls that we have. I don't know if politics are in the the next two to three years, but it has always interested me. I've always been interested in it, but I just don't know. Talking to people, it's a grind. You know how I am. I talk to everybody. People be coming to our house. Hey, there's a pothole over here. You know, like, oh, you know, and I would embrace it. I'd be like, hey, once a week I'm having dinner with constituents at my house. Let's talk. Even the ones that didn't vote for me, let's do it. Yeah, you know? they'd have to eat pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I would not make a very good politician's wife, but no, I, I was fortunate if that's the route you go. I think that you would make a good politician's wife in the in the sense that you're out here doing amazing things. You got a great job. That's all people need to, to see. You know, there's no like model. Just don't do anything crazy. Hopefully your legacy will be your awesome podcast and telling the story of people in Chicago who have incredible stories to tell from all different walks of life and all different neighborhoods. So thanks for having me on as your interviewer. It's fun to be part of a podcast instead of just a listen. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah. Intro, mixing, editing. It's done by Alyssa Moxley. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com or on Twitter. Our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com.